uh, or within the last couple of weeks about how giving has changed uh, through COVID and with technology and we don't pass plates anymore. Well, a couple of years ago, we switched to uh, an online giving platform um, that, that made us a certain amount of guarantees about the benefits that they would provide for us. And all of those guarantees came true, which locked us into our contract with them. What also came true was unbudgeted fees that amounted to more than $6,000 uh, a year that we weren't expecting. And so as we've been living out that contract with, with PushPay, um, our fees have been, been very, very, very high. Um, and so we're going to be making some transitions in several of our platforms that we think will not only benefit the staff, but benefit you. We'll be able to, to make things a lot easier. So we're not doing this today, but here within the next uh, month or so, we're going to be transitioning away from PushPay and towards Planning Center Giving. It's going to mean a change in our app. It's going to mean those of us who give with recurring giving electronically we're going to have to set all that up again. However, uh, just so you know some of the benefits, uh, what, what we're currently paying is, uh, I mean, we, we, have, we have not only the fee we pay to push pay, uh, which is much larger than what we're going to, our, our fee to planning center giving is going to be much cheaper, but there's per transaction fees. And so currently, uh, we, for an ACH, that is if you link your bank account to give, we pay around 2%. It might be 2.2, I don't remember exactly. And if you use a credit or debit card, it's around 3%. Those numbers for ACH are going from 2% to 0%. Uh, with only a 30 cent transaction charge for giving via a, a bank account. And for, for credit or debit cards, it's going from a transaction fee in like 3 or 3.3% down to 2.2%. And so we're going to see a significant uh, amount of savings. But it is going to require some work. We'll let you know as that's coming up, and we'll help you take steps and download apps and set up whatever you need to do that way. But this morning, I'm just giving you a heads up that that is coming. Um, but we believe it to be the best stewardship of the resources that, that uh, God has given us. And so um, we're, we're working on some of those steps. Let me read now to you our text for today. We are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 16. Um, and then we'll pray. These twelve, the twelve we looked at last week, Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent, 
serpents and innocent as doves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you first uh, and foremost uh, for the salvation you have offered us in Christ that has been announced not only by these 12 whom you sent out, but by their word from generation to generation. So we're here today because uh, you confirmed uh, their word by signs and miracles. You confirmed the message that they preached. And we have it as you have given it to us here in your word. And we're thankful for that gift as well. Father, as we continue to consider the mission of the church, we pray that you would help us to live accordingly, to structure our lives uh, however is necessary to live according to your way and your will and the mission that you have set us on. Lord, we want to continue again to pray today for Caleb and Nicole. We thank you for the company that they have and other believers. We pray that there would be deep uh, relationships built and that there would be fellowship around your word and your son built in their lives. Lord, we pray that as they, uh, as they teach there in Indonesia, that they would stand firm in their faith and grow deeper and deeper in their faith. Lord, we pray this morning as well for Berean Baptist, and we thank you um, for the ministry that they have, Lord, and, and while we don't know much about them, we, we pray for them and us, that we would live on mission, that we would not get so caught up in uh, minutia of, of things that, um, well, that ultimately matter, but that may distract us from the gospel and gospel proclamation. Lord, we, we want to present every man mature. We want to, uh, we, we want to be uh, men and women and people who know your word and who have deep convictions and, and who grow in our knowledge of you, but, but not to the point of being divisive over things that, uh, that you have not allowed us to divide over. And so, Father, give us wisdom to know what those things are. Give us great confidence in your word. Give us great witness to the world around us and use this passage today to do that. Give us soft hearts to, uh, to obey your word. Give us sharp minds to understand it for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, somebody asked me last week, you know, hey, lots on evangelism lately. Is this kind of a new theme? And my answer was, well, no. And simultaneously, my answer is yes. Um, it's not a new theme to my preaching. It's simply the theme of the section of the book of Matthew that we're in. And, and my goal each week is to stand up here and be faithful to say what the text says, to not use it to launch into telling you what I want to say or, or those kinds of things, but to simply take a text and, and explain what it says and what it means. And so that's kind of where we are in the book of Matthew. A huge theme, one of the massive purposes of the book of Matthew is to give us the mission that we are on. We see that Jesus came to usher in a kingdom. The, the announcement uh, here, not only uh, that the, the disciples are given, is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus announced the same thing, to repent for the kingdom is near. Uh, and Jesus came to usher in this kingdom. And he left us as heralds of that kingdom. We're going to look at the remaining uh, part of this chapter, verses 5 all the way through verse 42 in two parts. Because I think this, uh, this chapter, the remaining part of this chapter, really is kind of a, a two-fold um, commissioning 
of those heralds. And today, as we look at verses 5 through 16, what we're going to see is, is really the commissioning of the disciples. Uh, we might call this the ordination of the disciples. Here, the, the leaders of the church, these uh, disciples, apostles, pastors, and this ministry evangelists that they would, would have, they're really being ordained to that ministry here. The remaining uh, verses that we're going to look at next week, verses 17 to 42, I think are more specific to you and I and the, the, miss, the mission that we're on. I, I don't think that what, what is contained in the remainder of this chapter is all merely immediately pertaining to the disciples. I think our text today, 5 through 16, does pertain to the disciples, and even to some degree us, because we are carrying on that same mission, and there's going to be much for us to learn here. But the remainder of the chapter looks out farther than the immediate mission that Jesus sent the disciples on. And so he calls these 12 to himself. He says, I'm sending you out to, to do this job. And then we, what Matthew gives us is kind of the extension of that and, and to how you and I are to live out this mission. Why would I think that this isn't immediately pertaining entirely, at least from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, to the disciples. Well, I want to give you several features of chapter 10 here that might lead us to that. First off, in verses 5 and 6, and in 9 and 10, um, really 5 and 6, but, uh, but there's some implications in 9 and 10 as well, Jesus tells the disciples not to go to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles. And later, we'll consider more as to why. But he says, I want you to start with the house of Israel, with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in verses 17 and 18, uh, particularly 18, he says to beware of men, for they will deliver you to courts and flog you in synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so he sets, we see firstly that Jesus sets them on mission kind of immediately with him while he's there in the house of Israel. But then he speaks to a future day when what will happen will be before the Israel, or before the Gentiles. Now, uh, this beating and this persecution and this being dragged before governors and kings that he refers to of, uh, of here, we have no indication anywhere in any of the Gospels that that happened during Jesus' life and the disciples' ministry with him. So once we get to verses 17 and 18, we, we have a pretty good indication already that he's referring to something farther out than the immediate mission he is sending them on uh, here. Secondly, when we look at the parallel passages in Mark and in Luke, we see that these two sections of Matthew in, in those books are separated. I've mentioned this a lot already, but Matthew often breaks chronology for the purpose of theology. And I think that's what's going on here. I think Matthew is taking two separate teachings of Jesus and combining them into one because there's a concurrent theme between the two. But when we look at uh, Mark and Luke, we see that, that uh, verses 5 through 16 and really their theme occur 
early in the books of Mark and Luke, and the remainder of what we'll see in chapter 10 occur later. So uh, let me give you some examples. Let me, let me just walk you through this whole chapter really quickly. We're not going to read it all. But verses 5 through 8 of chapter 10, they're only found in Matthew. We don't find them in Mark or Luke or John. They're, they're unique to Matthew. However, verses 9 through 16, the rest of our passage for today, they are found in both Mark and Luke. Uh, There's parallel passages in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus sends out the 12, and then there's parallel passages in Luke 12 and 14 and 17. I'm sorry, I'm I'm looking at the wrong section of my notes. Uh, In Luke 9 and 10, where the 12 are called, and then the 72 are sent out. So in Mark and Luke, the the text we're dealing with today, it really deals early on in Jesus and the apostles' ministry with the the 12 of them, the 12 disciples, and even the 72 as he sends them out. Now, verses 17 through 25 also have parallels in Mark and Luke. But whereas our passage today is found in Mark 6, the, the second half of the chapter is found in Mark 13. And whereas Luke 9 and 10 contain our text today, we don't find the remainder of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 10 until Luke 21, at least of 17 to 25. Uh, Verses 26 through 39 are not found in the book of Mark, but they are found in various places in Luke 12 and 14 and 17. And so we see again later in Jesus' ministry. And then once we get to the end of chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, they're once again found in Matthew. All of that is to say, I don't think I'm making this up, okay? That's a lot of minutia there, but, but I think what we're seeing is that the text today is the commissioning of the 12 disciples to go out and do a ministry to the nation of Israel immediately at that time and in the context of being with Jesus and ministry to the nation of Israel. Then what we see is Matthew tacks onto that a later teaching of Jesus that's much more specific about how you and I are to live out, how we take up the ministry that Jesus sends the apostles on. So with that being said, as we continue to look at this great commission mission. I want us to work through the details of this passage today, kind of understand what's happening here and what Jesus is calling uh, the disciples to specifically. And then I want to consider five lessons for us today. Let's start with verses five through six. These 12, which are listed in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, Jesus starts out their ordination to ministry quite strangely by restricting their ministry. It's not just a broad statement of uh, uh, like the Great Commission that we read out of Mark this morning or we saw out of Matthew 28 last week where Jesus says, go to all the nations and proclaim the gospel and baptize and teach. Now here, we see him doing the exact opposite. Rather than sending them out to the ends of the earth, he is restricting who they get to go to. He's restricting them from the Samaritans, 
and the Gentiles. The difference between the two, I don't know if, uh, well, I'll give you a little bit of history here so that we can understand um, maybe who the Samaritans are. Of course, we know who the Gentiles are. The Gentiles are just, it's a generic term for any non-Jew. And and the Jews, they didn't have a particularly good nor bad relationship with the Gentiles. Uh, they They were seen as those who were far from God, both spiritually and geographically. They didn't have access to the temple. They couldn't even go into the temple. They were they, they had to stay outside in the court of the Gentiles. And so they, these were just kind of a, a godless people. It was, it was them, right? It, it was those people out there, just kind of a generic them. But you could, by means of learning the law and learning the customs and, and through some, uh, some ceremonies and, and rituals, you could become part of the nation of Israel. However, and so there was, there was some degree of, um, of ethnic animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. But the Samaritans, now that's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother thing. The Samaritans were, were hated by the Jews in many ways. And so if you know your Old Testament history very well, you know that under King Solomon, David's son, who became king after Solomon, the, the nation of Israel was split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Assyria comes in and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel and hauls them off uh, the king in Judah at the time, he strips all the gold out of the temple and offers it to Assyria as kind of like a peace offering with every bit of wealth he could muster and kind of keeps them at bay for a while. And so Judah remains uh, a, a nation unto itself while Israel is taken into captivity in Assyria. Uh, fast forward a couple hundred years, uh, world powers have changed, and Babylon comes sweeping in and conquers and destroys this southern kingdom of Judah. And, and the best of the best are hauled off. We, we would be wrong to think that most of the nation was hauled off. But the best and the brightest, the nobles and the smartest, they were hauled off into Babylon. And so now we have a destroyed uh, capital city, Jerusalem in Judah, and, and uh, all of the, the leaders for the most part are gone, and the people of Israel uh, and Judah, I'm going to combine those two terms now, they begin to intermarry with the Gentiles around them. And they begin to have children. And then eventually there's this return under Ezra and Nehemiah where the temple is rebuilt and the wall is rebuilt. Um, We could talk at length about a theology of divorce in the book of Nehemiah. I don't think God is advocating for divorce, but Nehemiah and Ezra, they're kind of burdened by the fact that the nation of Israel is marrying Gentiles and they've had children now. And these kind of, uh, forgive the terminology, but I'm going to borrow some from our sordid past as a nation. These half-breed Jew Gentiles are what is the Samaritans at this point. 
And so they're, they're representative of, of national pain, of national conquer, uh, of the ethnic or racism as we might talk about it, this ethnic animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles, but it's mostly uh, directed towards the Samaritans. In fact, Samaria, now to the north of Israel, if you were a, a Jew in Jesus' day and you needed to, to travel for business or whatever region or for whatever purpose north of Samaria, you would, on foot, mind you, uh, probably most likely divert your way all the way around Samaria for, for days on end just to not have to go where they are. And that might come into some play as we understand this text today. Well, why do I bring all that up? Because there's a lot of speculation out there as I read commentaries about how this is why Jesus was limiting the ministry to the nation of Israel. Well, the Samaritans, they're not good. The Gentiles, they're not good. And so, hey, Jesus doesn't want them to go there. He's just locking them in in Israel. That's God's chosen people. And so this is who the ministry is to. But I think that's really unsatisfactory in the book of Matthew and in our chapter today. Because there is a theme throughout the book of Matthew of Gentile salvation. That the gospel, the life and death and resurrection of Christ is a message for all. That salvation is to all. And we've already seen that in verses 17 and 18 where they will bear witness and you and I will bear witness before Gentiles and kings and rulers. And so I don't think this can be it. And I think it's unsatisfactory for three reasons. Number one, Jesus was welcomed by the Samaritans early in his ministry, and he'll be going back. So Jesus didn't entirely avoid Samaria. Number two, the Great Commission, which we read in Mark today and Matthew last week, would ultimately come with the mandate to take the gospel to the whole world. And thirdly, as I've already mentioned, there's a Gentile theme in Matthew as, as Matthew wants us to understand that the gospel was always intended to go. So why then does Jesus restrict their ministry to Israel? I think there's two reasons, one practical and one theological. The practical reason is there's limited time. Jesus has three years Three years to accomplish the task that he came to accomplish. And he knows that, that he can't go as broadly as the message will ultimately go. And so there will be a time, that's verses 17 through 42, when the gospel will be taken out to the Gentiles. But here, the ministry they were set on, just practically speaking, was restricted to the tiny nation of Israel because time was of the essence. And Jesus was planting something there that would then grow beyond the place where they were. So that's just a practical thing. There was limited time. I think the, the second reason, much more theological in nature, is found in John chapter 4, verse 22, where Jesus tells us that salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans had kind of made a counterfeit of Jewish worship, different place, different location, different mountain, different people, different biblical text that, that wasn't complete. If you've heard of the Samaritan Pentateuch, you would know what I'm referring to. And I think Jesus is saying that salvation is not going to come either from the Samaritan 
imitation of what God had established in Israel, nor from the paganism of the Gentiles around it. God built the promise of salvation into what he was doing through the nation of Israel. But I think more than that, we have to understand that what Jesus said in John 4.22 is that not that salvation is for the Jews, but that it is from the Jews. And there was, there was a lot that still needed to happen. I made mention already, and we'll probably look at the, the feature again, that at this point in time, the announcement of the disciples is that the kingdom is near. But from this point, there's still about three years, maybe three and a half years, as Jesus commissions the twelve here, they're still a few years away from Jesus' death and resurrection, which ushered in the kingdom as being here. And so for us, this kingdom, this rule of Christ on earth, even though it has a now and a not yet reality to it, even though there's part of Jesus' kingdom that we have not seen fully realized, he is ruling nonetheless. He is in charge of all things. No, 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 no world event escapes his control or his power. His kingdom has come now. But at this point, it's near. And so Jesus is restricting their ministry to the nation of Israel practically, but also theologically, because there was work to be done and a life to be lived and a death to be died right there within the nation of Israel. So they're sent out, but they're sent out to the nation of Israel. Verses 7 and 8, let us know that the ministry and the message would be the same. He says to them, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's within reach, but it's not there yet. And then he tells them to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, to cast out demons. You received without paying. And we'll get to the the paying part here in just a second. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast, cast out demons. The mission, or the message rather, was the same, to announce the kingdom. And the message for us is the same. And that's what we'll see through the remainder of the chapter. Now, the the work for them was the same as Jesus, whereas the work for you and I is a little different. Um, we've, we've already, and I'm not going to labor this point today, we, we saw it in Matthew 16 as well, that, that the disciples were given the ability to do miracles as a sign. God was validating them as messengers. And while here, Jesus tells them that that will be normative for their ministry, it's, it's not presented to us as normative. All we have to do is fast forward just a, a little bit in history to, to the book of James, as James writes to a very Jewish audience, as Matthew does. And he, he says, is any among you sick? Let him call upon the elders, and they will pray and anoint you with oil, and you might be healed, because the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so James sets forth for the church as normative that prayer is the means by which we seek the miraculous work of God in our lives. And I'm going to continue to maintain that God does miracles today. And usually he does them, like he did with Abraham, in response to prayer. That's not a new pattern, which is why I bring up Abraham 
But for the disciples, the normative ministry for them was going to be one of a power that was intended, as we saw in Mark 16, to, uh, to validate them as messengers of God, to, to validate their preaching by miracles in the same way that Acts 2 tells us that Jesus was a man attested to by signs and wonders. And so their ministry was the same as Jesus. Our ministry looks a little different, but the message doesn't change. The message is that the kingdom is at hand. Now, I think it would do well for us to be reminded of how one enters the kingdom. And Matthew has already established that for us. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, you can turn there if you like. Jesus, um, that is not Matthew. That was chapter 4, but I went too far. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. uh, Jesus from that time began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is near. It's in reach. It's at hand. You you can almost grab a hold of it. And for us, we can. How do we do that? It is through repentance. I think often in in the modern day, we we have reduced faith in Jesus and, and we could talk about linguistically why. In fact, let's, let's talk about why for a minute, because I think it matters. Faith, we're often told in Scripture, is how one is saved. But what is the coordinate English verb for the noun faith? How do you put faith into a word that's action, something you do? Trust, but that's not really a coordinate word. It's a synonym, isn't it? Now, if I were to say belief, what would be the coordinate verb to belief? Believe. There is a verb that is coordinate to the noun belief. You have belief, and when you have belief, you believe or you are believing. There is no English coordinate verb for faith. And so we we substitute the word believe in there. But in Greek, there is. The noun is pistis. The verb is pistuo. And they're coordinate. You can hear the root in the two of them. And I think sometimes what our language, our own language has done, has led us to this place where we've reduced faith to belief, which usually for us is is merely intellectual. Something that we know to be true. If, if I have the head knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done, if I know that he is God who became a man, if I know that he lived a sinless life, if I know that he died in my place, if I know that he was buried in the grave that I deserved to be buried in, and if I know that he rose again, then I'm saved. But referring again to James, we would see that even the demons believe, and shudder. They don't necessarily have faith, and they certainly haven't repented, even though salvation is not an option for them. But Jesus 
tells us that the way we take hold of the kingdom is through repentance. This is a much more heart-oriented word. There's heart work to be done. When, when sin is, is, is the thing to which I'm attracted to, a knowledge of who Christ is should result in repentance, which causes movement away from one thing and towards another. That's why repentance, we often say, is to turn. To illustrate this, we see Matthew. He, he didn't, Jesus didn't call him, and he didn't stay in the tax booth and say, gotcha, Jesus. No, he got up. He left the sinful things and turned to the Savior. There's, there's hard work to be done here. The work, at least for the disciples, remember again, this was part of the, the commission that was specifically for uh, the disciples. The work is the same as Jesus. But for Jesus and for the disciples and for us, the message is the same. It is to call people to repentance. Now, if Jesus is calling them, and if they leave the tax booth, and if they left their fishing nets, and, and if they're about to embark on being sent out to travel as itinerant preachers throughout an entire nation, what do they do about being provided for? Well, let's return to verse 8. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Principle number one, the gospel came to you without charge. And you are to give it without charge. It didn't cost you anything. It's not to cost others anything. And so there's this sense in which they're told you're not to charge for the gospel. Let me, let me illustrate this. We don't come along and say things like, I know how you can be forgiven of your sin. And for the low, low price of... I'll tell you. We, we don't offer people indulgences, saying that if you'll pay certain prices or certain penance, you can buy your way out of purgatory. The gospel is free, and it is to be freely given. And so they are to give without pay as they have received without pay. However, they're still going to have to be provided for. And it's not going to be by going home and packing up all your earthly treasures, selling your house, packing your gold, your silver, your copper, getting a bag for your journey, getting two tunics so you have one to stay warm and one to sleep in. The, the second tunic we, we would think of as a sleeping bag. He's not saying, hey, go pack up enough because if, if you're going to give it away for free, you're going to have to have everything you need to provide for yourself now. He says, no, you're not going to need that because uh, the laborer deserves his food. And so on one hand, the gospel is to be freely given. And on the other hand, the laborer is worthy of his wages. There's this kind of dualistic nature there. We don't charge for the gospel, and yet there is the, the, the need to, to make a living. And 
while that's not the main point of this text, and I'm not going to make it the main point, Luke speaks of this, 1 Corinthians speaks of this, 1 Timothy speaks of this, uh, other passages throughout the Bible allude to this. There's specific instructions to the church on how to give and how to pay for, uh, for its leaders and, and for its ministers. But I think if I could sum Jesus up here, he's saying this, while the gospel shouldn't be given away for, for money, the ministry of the gospel requires funding. And it's okay for ministers of the gospel to make a living from their work. Then we move into kind of this next set of instructions in verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. There's been a lot written lately. I can think of a few notable examples that I'm not going to name that seem to indicate if the church would just get out of her own way, if we would preach the gospel rightly, if we would teach the scriptures rightly, if we would stop being pretentious and acting like we have it all together when we don't, everyone would want to believe. But Jesus doesn't give any indication of that. He tells them that they'll go to towns where they're rejected. And by the way, as we've already seen, he tells us that we'll be drugged before courts and synagogues to be flogged. There's no biblical founding for the idea that if our methodology were correct, our evangelism would be more effective. Now certainly, we can get in the way, and we're going to see that here even in this text. But Jesus tells them to expect that in some towns they'll find worthy people who receive them and their message. And in some towns they'll find unworthy people. And when you find a place to be unworthy, leave. And as you leave, shake the dust off your feet. The idea here was uh, it was an act of judgment. That you didn't even want to carry the dust from that town back to where you live. Paul does this more than once throughout his ministry in, in Acts and other places in the New Testament. He, he literally stops to shake the dust off of his feet. When people listen to the gospel, when they listen to the announcement of the kingdom, that's where they're to put their efforts. But when they don't, they're to leave. And then there's this comparison here in verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town? Now again, I'm going to drop a gigantic theological bomb. We're not anywhere near looking at points yet. We can just blank the screen out. We're not even close. I'm sorry. I should have given you a little uh, fairer warning. We're going to come to those here in a minute. Um, sorry, squirrel. <laughs> uh, what, what's the comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah here? Because if we remember, Sodom and Gomorrah was the towns that, that uh, 
Abraham argued with God about. If I could just find 50 righteous people, or 40 righteous people, or 30 righteous people, will you please not destroy it? And yet it still gets destroyed. And if we understand our Old Testament history, it was a wicked, wicked place. Here's the theological bomb I was going to drop on you. I think that Scripture clearly indicates to believers and unbelievers alike that our capacity to enjoy heaven and our capacity to be tormented in hell is directly connected to how we live in this life. What you prioritize in this life kingdom-wise, affects eternity. There are rewards in heaven. And we don't want to get there as though through fire, to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians, right? Do you want to get to heaven smelling like eternity or, or like the fires of hell because you just barely escaped them? If you want me to prove that to you from Scripture, come see me, we'll talk about it. But, but Jesus seems to be indicating here that judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah will be less severe than these towns who reject them. Why would that be so? Well, what's the unpardonable sin? What's the one sin that there is not forgiveness for? It's the rejection of Christ. No one who rejects the gospel, will be found in eternity. But there will be every other kind of sinner there to the glory of God. See, it's not the size of our sin that's the biggest deal. Your past sins, whatever they are, they're not unforgivable. They might be painful. God cares deeply about that. But they're not unforgivable. Whatever your temptation is towards, it's not better or worse than others. I know I've mentioned it before, but Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Not arguing that there are respectable sins, but arguing that there aren't. There should be no sin that we find respectable and find to, to be acceptable among us. If, if your problem is lust, that's not worse than greed. If you're tempted towards anger or violence... If, if you're tempted by uh, same-sex attraction, that's not worse than pride. But we're far more comfortable with pride and gluttony and lust and greed than we are with some other things. I don't think Jesus is giving us permission for that here. I think he's simultaneously reminding us that no sin is acceptable and all sin, except the rejection of him, is forgivable. And so to believers, I would say this. If you're here and you are absolutely convinced of your repentance, then expect that when you share the gospel, that you will be rejected by some 
and you'll be welcomed by others. That's normative. And to unbelievers, if you're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've repented. I'm not sure I love Jesus more than my sin. Realize this, that it does not take monstrous sins to be damned. All it takes is simply rejecting Jesus. That's it. It is the unforgivable sin. And then, in verse 16, Jesus moves on to tell us what the character of the messenger is to be like. How to stay out of the way of the gospel. And he says, first, we are to be sheep among wolves. This is harder for some of us than others. Because the world is a dangerous place. But we don't get to stop being sheep. We don't get to outwolf the wolves. The goal isn't to overpower the wolves, nor destroy the wolves, nor isolate from the wolves. The job, here's the scary mission. The job is to be a sheep who goes out to convert the wolves. They might eat us, but eternity for us is certain. Spurgeon said that the the great weapon of Christians is that they're weaponless. I don't think what Jesus means here, and we can debate these texts outside of this room as well, because that's not the point of this sermon. I don't think Jesus is saying you can't ever defend yourself or protect others. Let me give you what I think he's talking about. What do you do when you're slandered or maligned or gossiped about or accused? Do you rise up to your defense? Because God knows I do. I should have been a lawyer. Pretty good at it, I think. Do we we punish those around us passive-aggressively, aggressive-aggressively? I don't know. We're still sheep. We've got to stay sheep. We also have to be wise as serpents. This is really interesting because this is Genesis 3 language here. We're to be cunning but for good. We must be wise in the world we live in and we must take advantage of the opportunities around us and yet we're still called to be innocent as doves. And this is the difference between us in Genesis 3 and Satan. Our wisdom is a sanctified wisdom. We must be holy and true, not duplicitous or divisive or dishonest. To use a buzzword, we're to be authentic. And I don't mean the kind of authenticity that's thrown around today that is used in terms of permission to be sinful. Well, yeah, I know I struggle with that, but hey, at least I'm authentic. I'm talking about the kind of authenticity that does admit where we are today and where our struggle is, but is also willing to be seen as a people in in reform by our Savior, who are actually being saved by our Savior. And so if you're freaking out and you're like, five lessons and you're way over time, and I am, I just saw the clock, we're about to move really fast, okay? So five lessons for every believer from the ordination of the disciples. Number one, there's a mission field right where you are. 
God does send people across the globe. And maybe he wants to do that with some of you. Maybe he wants to call some of you to go somewhere far away. But the first place he sent the disciples was right where they already were. You don't have to go far to share the gospel. If you don't know any non-believers, you need to go farther. Number two. So number one, there's a mission field right where you are. Number two, the message of the gospel never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, we want to be wise in our context, but the message is the same. We cannot tinker with it. We certainly cannot improve it, and we don't get to lower the charge of admission for those who would enter the kingdom. All people still come into the kingdom by means of repentance. Number three, the gospel is free and the church needs support. We're never going to charge for the gospel, but the church doesn't run for free. Number four, cultivate gospel opportunities where there is a positive response. Cultivate gospel opportunities where there's a positive response. You should tell the people about who Jesus is. You should get to know people who don't know Jesus. And then tell them about Jesus. But spend your energy where the message is received. That doesn't mean you have to reject that person entirely. It doesn't mean you can't continue to pray for that person. But, you know, if you've been discipling somebody for 10 years and they, they just don't get it, maybe, maybe consider another pig to cast your pearls before. Number five, your character matters as a messenger of the gospel. Yes, the message of the gospel is hidden in jars of clay, but our lives are a testimony to the power of the gospel. The world will see our Savior by seeing what he has saved us from. And so we don't have to hide our pasts, but we also don't have to hide our presence. We can be honest and authentic, knowing that, that Christ has covered all of our sin, but we can also let people see that by God's grace, we're not the people we once were, and tomorrow we won't be the people we are today. We let them see our progress. Because they don't need to see our perfection. They need to see Christ's perfection. And they see his power to save, not when they see us living in our old ways, but when they see us living more and more into saved and sanctified lives. Father, do much for your glory through us. May we be messengers who take the gospel out who spend time where it's profitable, who don't tinker with the message. Would you also provide for your church? Not so that we can hide in here and do more out of the eyes of the world, but so that we might be better and better equipped to go out and share the gospel with the lost. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.